0: A just and sustainable local food system works bottom-up to eliminate local hunger and ensure nutritional security for all its citizens, especially those most in need. Today, we journey into the largely overlooked and underserved areas of Atlanta, Georgia, to discover a true local revolutionary who has taken the health and well-being of those in our community into her own hands. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Austin Haynes with the Waking Justice Project. In today's podcast, we'll interview a true revolutionary who's making evolutionary change in their community. Resilient communities are the core building blocks of a just and sustainable global society. And the foundation of a resilient community is a just and sustainable local food economy. It's why the global revolution starts at home at local farms and community gardens, at grocery co-ops and local food hubs, in your own garden, in your kitchen, and on your plate. The local food supply chain is the foundation of a self-reliant community, and resilient, self-reliant communities are the core building blocks of a just and sustainable new society, a new social system that will make this existing system of corruption obsolete. That is the revolution we seek. The real revolution is a strategic, nonviolent revolution. It builds self reliance and community resilience. The real revolution is a local revolt.
1: My guest today is the
0: founder of an incredible nonprofit organization called Vegan Mills That Heal. They serve those in need around the greater Atlanta area, not only warm plates packed with love, but also basic hygiene products, socks, blankets, and clothes. She's been homeless, dealt with abuse and other hardships, but never gave up and even managed to turn the negatives into positives. Please welcome to the show, Aisha Robinson.
1: Hey,
2: (laughs) I like that intro.
0: (laughs) Right on, right on. So first of all, thank you so much for joining me today. I want to dive right in and just like ask you how you got started. So you recently just did a name change. You were under the name Five Loaves in Atlanta, and you've recently changed to Vegan Mills That Hill. So can you just tell us like how you got started with Five Loaves and how that transformed into what it is today? What ended up happening was I wanted to do a potluck last year for Thanksgiving.
2: And I, like, reached out to different people in Atlanta. Everybody kind of was on board online. But when it came time to actually make food, like, nobody said anything. And so I still would recognize people, though. Like, when I'm driving out, I'll see people under bridges. And it would just make me think, like, okay, even if nobody else wants to do it, I still have to do it. So... I decided to just make soup. And it was the day after Christmas. And it was so cold outside. And we went to Walmart. We got like maybe 10 different cans of beans. All types of different stuff. Put it together made like this really great chili. And we got the vegetarian jiffy. And we made cornbread. Nice. Big old lady squares of cornbread. And we just wrapped everything up. We put the soup in, um, we found like bowls and just put foil on top. And I had a Dodge Avenger. We stuffed everything in the trunk. And then we just drove downtown. And it was me my mom and my oldest son, my youngest son. And we just walked down the street and we're like, hey, do you want something to eat? And people were like, yeah, sure. And the the joy that people had when they would say like, oh, my God, the food is hot. You made this for us. And then they would ask, like, what organization we were with. And at the time, there was no organization. I was just like, no, I just I just wanted to help. Yeah. And it was one guy that touched me specifically. He had just gotten out of uh, the hospital, the mental floor. And he said he had a nervous breakdown because he had just lost his mom. He was on the street and he didn't have anybody. He asked my mom for a hug and she hugged him. And he just cried. Mm. And he was like, nobody talks to me anymore. Wow. And I just remember like that feeling of isolation that comes with homelessness and how people kind of tend to make it seem like people who don't have a home are all mentally ill and not realizing how even if you were never mentally ill how being alone and isolated being treated like an animal over time will create a mental illness that was never there and people don't really like to address that they kind of make it seem like people who don't have homes are outcasts or they're some sort of criminals and they did something wrong to end up in those situations. And so when I just felt like the human connection and to be able to give somebody that, and it really didn't take much to do. I decided that we had to keep doing it.
0: Wow. Okay. So that's huge. So for one thing, you've only been doing this for less than a year. Yeah. Um, by the time this comes out, it might be around Thanksgiving again. But like, so anyway, less than a year now, you've been doing this. And you you mentioned something there that was really interesting. You said you remembered that feeling of isolation. So can you give us some backstory into your own story and what it was like for you dealing with homelessness? Um, sure. So like, The first time I,
2: I can say I started feeling homelessness in high school because briefly we stayed in a hotel and that was when I first started realizing that homelessness was not just people under bridges and people in tent cities. Homelessness existed on so many levels because what most people don't understand is if you don't have a permanent address, legally you're homeless. And so if you live in an extended state, that doesn't count as a residence. If you live with somebody else and your name's not on the lease, you're homeless. So people tend to just think very small when they think of homelessness. Sure. And I experienced that. And then I was actually 17. I was graduating from high school a year early. And then I found out I was pregnant. So my mom, she decided to keep my son so I could try to go to school for the first semester of school. I could not focus. Nobody told me what like postpartum depression was. It was too much going on at home for me really to focus, so I came back home. And that's when I really started experiencing going from this hotel room, this hotel room, to when I finally get a job, you don't make enough to get an apartment or your own. So you can't get an apartment. So you just keep going from room to room to room to room. And then I finally ended up experiencing homelessness in the car. So mm. it was my son, my mom, and myself. And I remember the first night of having to sleep in the car. It was like, we had a Ford Taurus. It was old. And it was one of those like, was it like a sedan so it had like a big back seat so I would just take my son put his car seat in the back lay him on me and then go to sleep until the sun comes up because by then it's too hot and I remember I was in college at the time and I couldn't focus in class at all I started losing like a grasp on time like I felt like I always had on the same clothes and people noticed I had to brush my teeth in the grocery store, like in the bathroom, wash up in the bathroom and go to class. It's like the ability to focus in that situation and go to school, especially when you have a child, is impossible. Mm. Um, And I ended up dropping back out of school. I couldn't take it. And so it would just go from these periods of like you get an apartment for a while. Something big happens with your car. That puts you behind because you need your car to get to work. Then now you can't pay your rent. Then you get evicted. Then now you have an eviction on your credit, so you can't get this. Then you end up back in a hotel. And it's like my life just went on this constant, constant cycle of that. And the isolation that you feel because automatically people judge you. So when you're in a hotel, I, I mean... You get harassed by the police so much. I would just pull in, they automatically want to search my car because they think I'm trying to buy drugs. I'm just trying to explain I'm there and I live there. They're like, why? I'm like, please don't make me explain my life story. I just live here. And so that alone puts you in such, uh, like you feel like nobody understands you. And so a lot of times I've noticed When people complain about unhoused people and they'll say, well, I tried to help him, but he had an attitude. And it's like, you got to understand that every day people are constantly being bombarded with people saying just the judgment that you face every day. That even when people help you, they help you with prejudice. So they help Mm. you and then they say, well, you better be happy I came to help you in the first place because you're homeless. And it's like, no, I'm still a human being. You don't know how I got here. And that's really kind of like what keeps fueling me to do it. Because I just remember what all of that feels like not being able to sleep at night. Like, I remember, I think last year was the first time I ever slept through like a whole night. Because I hadn't slept in so long. Because Mm. when you're in a hotel... It's always fight, it's police, it's arguments. it's people getting put out. You might get put out like 12 o'clock at night. It's all of those things. And it's constantly in your mind. You're always waiting for 11 o'clock because 11 o'clock is checkout time. And that's when you're trying to figure out how am I going to pay for it tomorrow? So to go outside of having to survive like that is a mentality and most people, if they've never experienced it, it's hard for people to have empathy for it because they just feel like, well, why don't they just try to make a better way for themselves? And it's like if you knew what it was like to have your whole life in a bag and for somebody to toss that out again and again, you would understand, like, the average person, if they moved out of their house right now, people don't want to leave behind Like people pay all this money to get their stuff shipped across the country because they don't want to leave their stuff behind. So if you had people throwing your personal belongings away all the time, it would mentally start to affect you. And I think people should have a little more empathy for people when they realize like to have all your belongings either on you or with you at all times. And for people to constantly throw them away, intentionally trying to hurt you and it's not just like other homeless people. It's the police. Um city officials order for people's things to be moved when areas get cleaned up. It's so many things. And I just think people have to open their heart and their eyes because a lot of times people aren't really paying attention to unhoused people and they can kind of see what they have going on.
0: Yeah. So obviously that's part of what led you to your journey today so when was it back then were were you starting to have thoughts like you know when I get on my feet I want to help people I want to have empathy (laughs) were you having those thoughts yet I mean
2: I would always have like a person around me if I would see them I would give them something to eat I've always been like that person even when I was a kid so if I had it I would give it away to somebody else I'll oftentimes do that to my detriment, but (laughs) I will always give to other people. But it would be these thoughts back then. It's like um, when you're in survival mode, the environment around you is constantly telling you if you help other people, that will be your downfall. So you have to, you're, you're thinking through a filter of there's not enough for everybody. And so it would be like, I would say, I want to help people. Then I'd be like, oh, but how am I going to get enough money to help other people? I don't have enough money for myself. And the story where you're in survival mode is always there's not enough for everybody. So if I get this, I have to hoard it for myself. I can't give it to anybody because if I lose it, then I'll have nothing. And then I'll be back at square one. Yeah. So I never I never thought about like this at all.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, so it just kind of happened. Then you just went with it. You got that yeah. whim last Thanksgiving, and you just followed it. Um, I'm a person of extremes. So <laughs> either yeah. I don't do it at all, or I'm going to completely do it all the time. Hey, I know how that goes. I can <laughs> relate to that. I can definitely relate to that. So, when you were when you were going from hotel to hotel and trying to figure out how you were gonna pay for the next night's stay. Um, were you also experiencing food insecurity and hunger, you and your family? Were Were there nights where y'all were going to sleep hungry? I would always
2: make sure that my son ate, but for myself, yeah, there were times that I went to sleep hungry, and definitely, I would say we were, everybody was malnourished because, truthfully, the knowledge of what we were eating didn't exist, and the convenience, there was One hotel we stayed at for a while, and all there was was a Dollar General, a Chinese restaurant, Hot Wing place, and a Bojangles. Mm. That's all that's in that area. So it's like, what do you do? And it was like a Walmart that was like a mile and a half down the street. So if I walked to Walmart, I would have to walk there and then get as much as I could take back with kids so it's very limited amount I could get from the store. So it's like I would see all these like influences on Instagram and YouTube and they make all these cool vegan dishes. But I'm like, I have no idea how I'm going to go get any of this stuff from anywhere. And so it would became like I knew what I was eating wasn't healthy for me. But I had no idea how to go get the other stuff. And my own health deteriorated to the place where I started having seizures. I was light sensitive. So I couldn't like go outside for long periods of time without my skin burning. Mm-hmm. I would have horrible headaches. It felt like somebody was like constantly sawing at my bones. I had pneumonia. My mom said she could hear me breathe in my sleep because that's how was full of mucus, my lungs were. Mm-hmm. And I was 23. So when I would go to the doctor, they would be like, you're fine. Like, are you on drugs? Are you an alcoholic? We don't understand. Every time I would go to a doctor, they would ask me, was I like a pain medication addict? And I would say no. And they would go, well, there's no like logical reason why you should be having seizures right now. They wanted me to go to a neurologist, but because I didn't have health insurance, I would have to wait like three months to see a neurologist. So it turned into like, a okay, I went through like a whole depression where I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to die. So whatever. And I started doing a little bit of reading and I started finding out about how milk can pretty much make you more mucusy. And then I started reading what was really in milk. And then I started finding out how it really wasn't good for you. Then I started doing more research about food deserts. And then I started realizing I lived in a food desert. Mm. And then I started realizing that all the stuff that was in the store around me was trying to kill me. I'm oftentimes I heard people say because they don't know the background that I come from, they'll be like, oh, you know, those people over there, they just don't want to eat right. And I'm like, have you ever been in the store over there? Because if you had and you compare that, even the the same brand of store, you can go in a Kroger, a Walmart, in a completely different neighborhood, they have different brands. They have they have organic juices in places that they don't even sell juice. All they sell is Capri Sun. Yeah. And it started over time making me realize I finally got got access to a car and I started going to farmer's markets and I was amazed at like the food I could find and how cheap it was and how they did accept food stamps. And it started making me realize like, wait a minute, after I started consuming different foods, my energy level went back up. I stopped having seizures. My skin wasn't burning anymore. And I was like, okay, so all this time it was the food. And I know so many people around me whose health was deteriorating so fast at such a young age. But nobody was telling us it was what we were eating. People just made it seem like, oh, that's just what happened. Oh, you know, it's just a part of life. You know, everybody has diabetes. Mm. It's like the story in our community is that, you know, I got my grandma's diabetic diabetes runs in the family. And nobody tells us, like, you know, you could prevent that. You don't have to do that. It doesn't have to be a part of your story. But it's like a mindset that comes with when you're constantly being bombarded with all you see is this one particular type of food. You associate your culture with that food. Yeah. And so you associate almost the anti-culture or the rich people. They're the only ones who can afford that because they can go to Whole food. And nobody tells you like, no, you could go to a farmer's market or, you know, we could bring the farmer's market to you guys or let's build a farmer's market instead of another liquor store in your neighborhood and help you out. Mm. And that like started my personal journey while I myself stopped being in pain. That I guess I'll say like I went gigging for the animal second after I saw a couple of Netflix documentaries. And then I had my second son, and I was like, oh, no, I don't want them to do that to my baby.
1: Mm.
2: But initially, it was for the health because I watched so many people in my community and my family be so ill. And it's not a terminal illness. These are illnesses that could be prevented, but nobody's telling people that you even deserve to eat this food, that this food is even accessible to you. It just turns into we just don't eat like that.
0: Wow. So so one of my questions was going to be for you to describe a food desert. And you basically already did that, but just to kind of clarify, a food desert isn't necessarily that there's no food at all around. Right. It's, it's just that the food that is around is uh lacking in nutrients or right. or a lot of or a lot of different nutrients. Um so you described having like a Bojangles, a wing shack, a Chinese right. restaurant. <laughs> and yeah, something else you said, and then a Walmart down the street. Yep. So that is a food desert. And, um, yeah, it's not that there's no food around, but there's processed food. There's a lot of meat. There's a lot of dairy. There's a lot of fried food. Wow. So when you started getting control of your life, you were realizing you were feeling better. You weren't sensitive to sunlight. Yeah. What was that like for you? Like, How did you feel during that time? Amazed because I had pretty much resigned
2: myself to like, I was just going to have to be like a sick person and something was wrong with me. And it almost felt like a ticking time bomb. Like I knew sooner than later, I was just going to have a seizure while I was, I mean, I've even had a seizure while driving back then. And I've never had that incident happen again. But back then all I would eat every day was hot wings and fries. And then later on, I'll probably eat fish and fries. Like, there was no type of nutrition. I didn't even drink water back then. So there was no type of nutrients going in around my body. Mm. And when I finally realized, like, oh, my gosh, I don't have to be like this. Even with my youngest son, my oldest son, he's always had issues that I didn't know stem from dairy. And so he had eczema really, really bad. And I couldn't figure out what it was. And he was drinking the milk at school. When he stopped drinking school milk, his skin clears up. And it was like, oh my gosh, all this stuff was preventable the whole entire time. And this, the, the part that upset me the most really was when I started realizing that it was all like market employees. And the whole time we've been taught, like, even when you have a, a child and they say, well, when they're a year old, start giving them dairy milk. And you realize you didn't have to do that. None of that stuff was necessary. Yep. necessary. You realize this whole time, like the, the WIC program, it's like women, infants, and children, it's supposed to supplement your food stamps. And they push dairy milk so heavily. You got to buy yogurt and you got to buy this. And no one's telling you that this type of stuff is injurious to you and your child. Mm. And then you have so many children with asthma but nobody discusses this. They just keep pushing dairy. When I was pregnant with my youngest son and my oldest son, they kept telling me to eat tuna. Tuna's full of mercury. And when I started realizing all that stuff goes into your baby, Mm. and before your child even gets here, they don't have a fighting chance. Yeah. Because this whole time, all this stuff's being pushed on you. That is like, really what continued me being like well what else am i being allowed to about and then that really pushed into me looking into how to help people eat better because i started realizing like wait a minute like there was one number that said it was like 900 and something unhoused unsheltered people in atlanta and it made me start to drive around and see where people were and see what people were doing and ask people questions and even ask them, like, well, what do you need from people? Like, let me stop just coming here shoving you stuff and trying to build up my ego, but like, really ask you, what do you need from me as another human being? Wow. And you start seeing, like, okay, wow, this is the help people need. And I kind of wish people would take more of that personal initiative instead of necessarily waiting on everything to be so political. Because, well, politics takes time, takes paperwork, takes everybody agreeing on this, this, that, and this. But to just treat another human being like a human being does not take the effort of the government, the mayor. It doesn't take anybody to do anything. It just takes, it could literally just be the guy who you always see on the interstate by your house on the exit. Just one day say, hey, how can I help you? Mm. Like he might say something like we've gotten people that will just say, can I have a a tarp? Can you bring me a tarp? Because I live in the tent in the woods and it rains sometimes. I need a tarp. That's like Dollar Tree type of stuff. And you can help people. You have people who are comfortable living in the communities that they live in. And they just need little things to straighten up their community. We've even met people who have like gout, high blood pressure, diabetes, and they might say, I just need a cooler to keep my water in so I can keep my water cool because, you know, I go days without drinking water, stuff like that. And that really makes a difference. And I think people who do preach veganism really need to take a look at the fact that you can't just treat... you. If you can't have empathy for a human, but you can have empathy for a chicken, I don't think that you're truly a vegan. No doubt, because you can't say in speciesism, but then say, "Oh well, you know, I only, I only like other humans that are vegans, or I only like other humans who do this." Or if you're a raw vegan, I like you, but I don't like you. It, you can't start being divisive like that. So you have to say, I mean. People would be amazed at the lives that some of the people have lived before they got to where they got. So you have some people who are vegans or who are raised vegetarians and just don't have access to that right now. So you don't know their story. And you really, I don't think you have to know somebody's entire story to be of service to somebody. They don't owe you an explanation on how they got there. Because that's not how you should expect people just based off of your story lines up with my feelings, mm. so now I can help you.
0: Wow! Yeah, you're dropping some serious knowledge now. <laughs> I like that. I wanna. I do want to figure out in your story though. Like, ha- have you been able to transition out of homelessness yourself? Yes, but right now <laughs> I'm working
2: on finding like a house. Because I'm going to have to move from where I am. And the most difficult thing now is from doing all of this work and from COVID. And honestly, truthfully, from like discriminatory issues, because of my religion and because of my complexion, you'll have people who do not want to rent you. Or they come up with like these really, really ridiculous rules about you have to make like four times the rent. It'll be stuff that's not even really legal, but by the time you sit up and argue with them, it's like you might as well just find somewhere else to go. Mm. And so really, honestly, that's been the most difficult thing is finding somewhere that I guess one isn't afraid of renting to me because I have I think I've applied to like 10 different places so far And they're like, well, we don't really have to tell you why we didn't approve you. And the waiting
0: game is the most difficult part of all of it, truthfully. So you're basically still in a transitional part of your life, you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. And um, also, just to clarify, over the past year, since last Thanksgiving to now, you know, you were just doing this kind of on your own time, right? And you were trying to make it legit but you were you were basically just going out and feeding people and and just doing what you know you could to help people day to day face to face um but you have gotten a 501c3 now right yep so how are things looking for you in the future based on just having that
2: it should help a lot because now i can like apply for grants have a salary, and then when people decide to donate, they know that they're donating and it's tax
0: deductible. Awesome. And so I was going to ask you that. So you, um, not only do you feed people, but you also give people blankets, socks, clothes, and things of that nature. So where do those donations come from?
2: Um, Sometimes it's just like random people who will see us post something, and they'll say, hey, I got a bunch of blankets. Can I bring them to you? But mostly it'll come from when people donate, we'll just go to the thrift store, especially the goodwill on Monday because it's their 99cent day. we'll just rack up on whatever we can get mm. and fit in the back of a van and then <laughs> and go ahead and go
0: down there and pass them out. Okay, cool. So if people do want to donate, um, because a lot of this just comes from everyday people, right? How can yeah. they get in touch with you to donate um, uh, clothing and stuff like that?
2: Um, they can reach me on Instagram at meals that heal. And then they can also email me at a Robinson at vmth.org.
0: Vmth.org. Okay, cool. And then so I was gonna ask you too, have you been able to work with any local farmers on um, on the food that you're serving or uh, you know, where where has mainly the food come from that you've been serving recently?
2: That's the cool part. Is between, like, local farmers, we've had um, a farmer, a mother and daughter, and we went to, like, almost by Athens, Georgia, mm. and picked up, like, some sweet potatoes from them. We get a local, I'll say at least once or twice a week, We have different local farmers who donate produce. And then we also have people from, like, they're trying to reduce food waste. Sure. And they pretty much save the food, and then we go pick the food up from them. Okay. And that helps cut down on costs. And then it helps cut down on food waste.
0: Awesome. So have you seen any uh, changes in your community? I know you're seeing personal changes, like, day to day, because you're helping people on such a personal level but have you started to see like like changes in your community uh on a whole since since you've been working on this? Honestly, it turns into like you realize how much more work
2: really needs to be done. Mm. I'll say since COVID it's gotten like exponentially worse. It's like you'll go under one bridge and then that whole community exists as a tent city and then you'll see that whole tent city destroyed. And they have to go different places to pretty much try to regroup. But once that gets too big, a lot of times, then they pretty much knock it down. And then they push it somewhere else. And so a lot of times when you see people who have to drift off from those communities, especially women, you have a lot of stories about robbery. You have a lot of stories about being harassed by a police officer and nobody believing in their story. So that's really, like, the hardest thing. When you see people living in their cars with their kids and pretty much just trying to, like, hold everything together. Uh, we see families, we'll see women with children, like, in the park, and they just really don't know how to tell their kids, like, there's nowhere to go. And since the shelters aren't really taking anybody new, it's like so many people are in this state of limbo.
0: Mm. it's really, really hard to see. And why aren't the shelters taking anybody new? Is that because of COVID or or what? So they haven't taken any new people since like March. Wow. And then the city
2: has, I think there's a certain amount of rooms, like hotels that are supposed to take the homeless in, but a lot of them don't want to because they, you know, it would destroy their brand, so to speak. Now they don't really want to. So you have people who are being promised rooms and being promised apartments. It was like, I remember one man, he he has one leg and he walks around on crutches. And he told us he had been on the streets for three months and he had finally found, like some guy had promised to find him a place. And he just explained to us, he was so happy because he was like, no more rat. Because people will show you all the time these different rat bites. Mm. Or something bit them in their sleep, and they don't know what it is. And if, like, if you could imagine you have a job, but you have to be unhoused, you leave your stuff, come back, all your stuff going. gone. You lay down at night, you don't have a blanket, and you're downtown. It's trash all around you. It's dark. Stuff's going to crawl on you. And people have these bites. They're afraid to go to the hospital because they don't have insurance. And a lot of the times they're just treated like drug addicts who make up stories. So they just end up in a worse condition than they, you know, originally got there. And so really that's, that's the hardest thing of all of it, really, is just knowing there's so much more work to be done, but because there's so many people who don't empathize with their story and so many people feel like homelessness only happens to a select few people. Who make bad decisions, so to speak, I feel like the work is not being done where it truly needs to be done at. It's a lot of meetings, but people not really putting the action anything to really, really
0: help people. Mm. So can you explain a little bit about how vegan mills that hill works? Um, do you have a brick and mortar spot where you set up and and hand out food and clothes from one spot or are you still like driving around and meeting people where they are um to it's distribute like, um, stuff? like the Batmobile. So
1: <laughs> Yeah.
0: So we just uh, we
2: pack up the van and we just go. Um it's like we have different routes for different sides of town. Okay. So people in specific areas we know they're gonna be there, like um, the bus station the train station, people are always going to be there. There are different, like, encampments that we know of that people have particularly been able to stay in those areas. So we'll go over there. Sometimes if we just see one person, we just go serve that one person. And a lot of times, because you might see one person, as soon as you pull over, there might be, like, nine more people that were in the area. And then oftentimes, because now people know who we are, when like they see one of us, the other one will like yell across the street. You'll look up; it'll be like twenty people behind the car in like no time.
1: Yeah. And we've so-
2: even had incidences where like we've been passing out food, and people will stop their car in the middle of the street and be like, "Oh my god, I'm so hungry! I just got off work. I was about to park my car and go lay down. Can I please get something to eat?" You're like, "Yep," you just give them the food.
0: What what if people's uh, response has been like, um, you know, you mentioned like that these people are they're not only homeless, but a lot of them are in food deserts where they probably can barely even afford kind of like the junky food that's in those food deserts. So yeah. what what is their response has been like when you're giving them a, like a healthy plant based meal?
2: It's been great, honestly. I mean. I'll say when I first came up with the idea, I posted about it in like a local vegan group. And I had people in the group go, oh, uh, they don't want, they don't want vegetables. And I'm like, I got to test this theory now, just because you said they don't want vegetables. Because we're not they, so you can't say what they want.
1: Exactly.
2: And we'll, we'll go down there and like, I have fruit. Sometimes I make juices. And to watch people, like, almost turn into children, like, you know, the light that children have in their eyes about the smallest little thing. Yeah. You'll see people, now they'll be like, what is that? Like, that's watermelon juice. And they're like, oh, my God, can I get two of them? And wow. Like, yeah. And that alone, people have a general knowledge that you're supposed to be eating better. It's just the fact that you can't. And you don't have access to it, so you just pretty much do what you do. Like I said, if 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 we feed a hundred people, you might have two people who say I don't eat vegetables. But normally they might not want the vegetables, and they say, Well, can I have two oranges and can I have a water? Or yeah. you know, um, I don't want the water, but I'll take the oranges and the food. And we've even had people that'll go, What is this vegetarian? I don't want no vegetarian food. And then they'll go eat it, and then they'll come back and they'll say, What you put in that? And I'll be like, that was mushrooms. And they're like, really? I like mushrooms. So then I'll come back again and they'll go, you got some more mushrooms for me today? He's like, yep, I sure do. So it's, it's almost like exposure. And then it's also being in mind of, I used to eat like that. Mm. So I know how to shape a meal into something that like psychologically you could look at it and say, oh, I'm familiar with this. Like when you know when you're a vegan, it takes time for your taste buds to get to a point where you would just be like, Ooh, I want to eat a salad with the avocado on top. It'll look pretty to you now, three years in, but like the first time you went vegan, you wanted like a beyond burger and you wanted this. It took time because this is a mental association. So now understanding like, well, most people don't have access to this food. So if I make chili, you know what chili looks like, so you're not going to second guess, like, why would you make me a salad? And the craziest thing in the world, we've made salads before, took the mushrooms, fried them, put them on top put the Lord and People thought it was a fried chicken salad, ate it up, and loved it. Nobody complained about it. I like this meat. This is some fresh meat. I'm like, sure is.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and so... It's like to do that, I think, is the coolest thing in the world. Because then you'll yeah. have people who will come back later and say, well, what was that? And they'll ask and I'll explain it to them. And they'll say, wow, thank you for making that for me because I never had that. I didn't know you could make greens without putting smoked turkey necks in them. Like, yeah, you don't have to put that in there. <laughs> it's not yeah. necessary. And so to even expose people to that and have conversations and pass them by with people. To understand that your meals don't have to be that, and to even let other people know who may not know that unhoused people want healthy food too, is to explain to people, yes, they want this food just as much as you do, and it shouldn't you shouldn't have to be subjugated to because I live in a particular neighborhood or because my financial situation is a certain way, that I have to be penalized for that by not having access
0: to healthy food sure. So basically, the, the response—it sounds like—has been really overwhelmingly positive. Yes, and basically not, like pretty much exactly uh, the opposite of what your vegan Facebook group told you.
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, I was waiting for people to like, uh, you know, in those old cartoons where people will throw tomatoes at you until you walk away. Yeah, I was waiting to be tomatoed, and it never happened. So it
0: never happened. Yeah. <laughs> You're still waiting. You might be waiting oh, yeah. forever, it sounds like. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I also heard through the grapevine that your mom is your number one volunteer. So how is that, working with your mom?
1: It's
2: fun at times. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because I came up with the idea, but that's my mom. And I'm like, uh, like Gordon Ramsay-ish in the kitchen. And so uh, sometimes she'll just walk out the kitchen on me. She'll pop back up. Yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah, it's fun being in the kitchen with me.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So she's been a a big help ever since that first day that y'all handed out stuff on uh, Thanksgiving last year.
2: Because, like, I'm more of an introvert than my mom is. And my mom is extroverted, Mm. getting out the car, walking up to people. Hey, how you doing, y'all? Hungry? Come get you something to eat. My mom's dead, so it's like a yin and yang sort of thing. Because me personally, I'll like roll the window down and be like, "Hey, you guys. Nobody said anything. Okay, well I'm just gonna sit here awkwardly until somebody <laughs> walks over here." Yeah. So it's like she can get out of the car. If there's never been a time where like it'll be a group of men back there. And my mama, somebody will be a little rowdy. My mama calm everybody down. Just like that. I'm like, okay, cool. Thanks, mom.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: So she's been great. She's been great. My oldest son, he comes out with us sometimes. He's spoiled. Nice. He loves it. My youngest, sometimes he's in the backseat. He likes to wave at everybody. He's like the little ambassador.
0: So that's awesome. it's been awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. Do you have other volunteers, or is it mainly just you and your family?
2: It's mainly me and my family. We've had two instances where other people have come out, but normally it's just me and my mom, like 99% of the time. We have other Mm -hmm. people who cook dishes sometimes. I will make, like, big shaping dishes, and we'll just scoop
0: it out, put it in a bowl, and
2: hand that out or whatever we're handing out,
0: and then just pass out more meals. Are you looking for more volunteers? Are you looking to, to build more bridges with other folks in the Atlanta area? I would love to
2: because the, the the need is there. And we can only fit so much in the back of the car. And it turns into, like, one of the hardest things ever, especially with it getting, like, colder at night, is the blanket. So when you're watching people, like, you, when you're feeding people, that's an amazing feeling. But it's like when you have somebody in your face, another human being, say, you got any more blankets? And you do have them at the house, but you couldn't fit them in the car. Mm. And you watch somebody lay on the sidewalk to go to sleep, and it's like 35 degrees outside, and they don't have on shoes. And they just ask you like, well, okay, well, can I get that bag in the back so I can lay the bag across me? Or they mm. ask you for the cardboard box in the back so that they can lay on top of the box. Then you just wish you had that much more space to put more stuff in the car and then be like more of a help.
0: Sure. Okay. So, this will be a good time for us to uh, give a little call to action and just say, like, you know, definitely reach out to Aisha. And, um, you know, if you want to help with uh, food, clothes, blankets, anything like that, if you want to volunteer, definitely reach out to her. We'll put all her information in the uh, description for the video and the podcast and all that. So hopefully we can get you some help because you're doing phenomenal work for for sure. Could you just give uh, listeners an idea? So say they're in their community, you know, in a different city somewhere in the world, how can they start feeding people healthy food and, and clothing people in their community?
2: Number one, just go. I mean, we all have those areas of town, mostly the, I mean, I've been to LA, I've been to San Diego, I've been to Seattle, I've been to various different cities. Normally downtown has a high concentration of unhoused individuals, no matter what city in. And if you just go to an area that you feel safe in, because people who have to live off of their survival skills can sense insincerity, and they can also sense fear. So if you walk up to people and you're already afraid of them, your body language is very readable and people are going to feel like they can't trust you or you have some sort of ulterior motive for why you're there. So you have to go somewhere you personally feel safe and you have to wash all those prejudices out of your brain that somebody's going to hurt you, they're going to rob you, they're going to steal your car. Just let all that stuff go. And you have to go out there and just, even if you made five meals, even if you made one, because you only felt comfortable talking to one person that day and you just saw the guy, the light, and you don't have to start having a conversation initially. You can just say, excuse me, sir, are you hungry? He might say, yeah. And you hand him a bottle of water, you hand them something to eat, you say, okay, sir, you have a great day. And the next, you pick maybe every Wednesday you do that and you just keep showing up. People will start talking to you because now they trust you. Because a lot of times you have people approaching unhoused individuals and even people who are housed but, you know, experiencing different food insecurity issues. You have a lot of people approach them with a motive. So when you walk up to people and you say, here's something to eat, and then you say, hey, I need you to come to my organization next week so I can help you fix your life. Don't do that to people. Yeah, because number one, you don't know if they want your help, and number two, like you don't know their situation. But over time, when you built up trust, it'll be amazing. Like the stories that people tell me now, the things that people share with me now—that initially, I mean, truthfully, because of the, the the ill-conceived notion a lot of people have about Muslims, when I first started showing up, people are like, "Oh God, what what are you?" what are you about to do people people or they thought that i was gonna try to force them to come to a mosque so like they're like why are you doing this for me and i'm like because like i I know what it feels like not to eat and they'll be like oh okay after a while people just open up and they might tell you hey i need this and it'll be like something small like i need some batteries because I have an alarm clock and I want to get up every day because I have a job. You might find out that they need a blanket. You might find out that they need a ticket back home. You might find out that they're in an abusive relationship and they're trying to get back to where they came from, but they need a bus ticket and they need the bus ticket and they need the guy not to know that they're getting a the bus ticket so they can get home. There's so many things. And when you start speaking to people, you really realize a lot of us are going through very similar situations. A lot of people who are housed right now are depressed. A lot of people who are housed right now are anxious. A lot of people who are housed right now have experienced some sort of loss and are going through some sort of grief. And when you start relating to people like that, you'll continue to help. And we have to let go of this notion that. The only way you can help somebody is by like tossing money out of the window because a lot of times like cash helps, but some of the stuff they need, they don't have access to it. So they might just, like I said, need a tarp or they might need some sheet or some hygiene yeah. products, need deodorant. Yeah. Just the smallest things in the world. And it all starts from just doing it and yeah. then not thinking that it has to be a very grand gesture. Because at first, we would get like thirteen plates out, maybe fifteen plates out, and that was all we could do And that started building up relationships from the beginning, because, like I said, people would be like, "Wow, y'all really keep coming out here. y'all didn't forget about us, or you might have somebody say like they have a hole in their shoe. you go to goodwill, find a pair of shoes for five bucks. Hey, man, I was thinking about you. Here go those shoes you said you need it. mm." In the grand scheme of things, most people who are housed life is not gonna change about five dollars. But that person that you gave those shoes to, their life will change about that five dollars. And For sure. that's really how people can like go about just helping others and just build that dialogue. Because we have people now who will still say, You got some more watermelon juice? You'll make me a salad next time. I've had people like literally sit down and tell me why they prefer quinoa over rice.
1: Wow. And like,
2: really? And I mean, you had people who had culinary training who are unhoused right now. And we'll sit up and they'll be like, yeah, next time you get some kale, you got to braise the kale. And they'll tell me all these different techniques and stuff. And so it's like, once you just realize, like, wow, I'm like having a conversation with like any other person and you can't. Base the level of respect that you give somebody off of where they live, what they drive, what they have on, and just Mm. share some plants. And then people can open up their dialogue because you can't be the angry vegan. That's the image right now is vegans are angry and they're rich people, they're elitist, they don't care about anybody. All they care about is the animals. That's the dialogue. So for people to be like, oh, wow, you know what? I had one of those crazy vegans come feed me. But he come feed me every Wednesday. I love my crazy vegan friend."
1: Yeah.
2: Then the next thing, you know, they might ask you, so what's wrong with milk? Because I have people who ask me that now. So they'll say, you don't eat meat at all. And I'll be like, no. They'll be like, so what's wrong with this? What's wrong with that? And then I'll explain it to them. And then he'll go, oh, mm. I never thought about it like that but you'll never get to do that if you're just like screaming out the window at people like don't drink milk anymore. You don't know their options. You don't know what they're going through. So a lot of people, even if you see them posting on Instagram or Facebook and you're attacking them, you don't know where people live. You don't know their situation. You know what they have access to. And everybody comes from a different culture. So in a lot of cultures, meat is associated with being wealthy and not eating meat is associated with being poor. Yep. And so a lot of people don't know, like, no, it's not about being poor. It's about you being healthy. Normally one and one never really get put together. And so you have to think about that culturally when you go to people, even if they initially reject what you give them, they say, no, I don't want that. It's going to be somebody who will eat the food. So it's okay. And you have to respect that, that unfortunately that's just a part of the culture is being seen as meat. Even if it's the most gross, disgusting concoction that it is, just a big tube of all sorts of orifices, nobody, <laughs> that's what you're taught. And you just got to break that cycle. And the only way you could break it is by doing it yourself.
0: For sure. Well, that, all right, first of all, that's really good. Um, uh, knowledge that you're giving, giving us about, you know, just starting in in your community, just start with the people that are there, just cook some food, just go out and do it. Basically, don't worry about how much you got Just start with one plate, two plates, 10 plates, like work yourself up, however you can do it. Also, I just love what you're saying about, like, obviously you're not going out there. You're not preaching to people about Islam or veganism. You're just going out there and doing your thing. And probably because of that, you're probably getting more questions than you would about both your religion and veganism just because you're not concerned with having an agenda other than just feeding people. Feeding people healthy food, what you see as healthy food, and and just going out there and doing the work that you know should be and could be done right now. Exactly. So, So that is so motivational. And I think there's a lot we can learn from that. Right there. There's a lot. I'm learning a lot from that. Yeah, and I don't know. Is there any other closing thoughts? Do you want to tell people like how they can reach out to you again? Uh, maybe like your Facebook, Instagram. You know, maybe we'll say your email one more time. Um, you can find me on Instagram at vegan meals that heal. You can
2: find me on Facebook under that same name, and then my email address is a. Robinson at B-M-T-H dot org.
0: Well, Aisha, hey, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today, because like, seriously, your story is so motivational. And I want to do a round two with you, too, because you're this is so new. Like, since you just got your 501 uh, C3, like I want to come back in a few months and and see how everything's changing for you and evolving and, and talk to you again. But I'm on for it. Right on. Thank you for having me. You got it. Thank you so much. Yay! We did it. <laughs> yeah. Good job. Good job for real. All right. All right. Peace. Thank you. Yo, thanks for listening to the podcast today. If you're currently involved in a local project that strengthens the links in your local food supply chain, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info@wakingjustice.org at and tell us about your work. And if you want to learn more about local revolutionaries making evolutionary change in their communities, find us on your favorite podcast platform or head on over to wakingjustice.org to meet the team. Check out more episodes and learn more about the project. And to become a financial supporter of this podcast and to gain access to members-only content, visit patreon.com wakingjustice. And remember, the real revolution builds self-reliance and community resilience. That's why the real revolution is a local revolt. You must be involved in the struggle for freedom and justice if this justice, justice is waking justice is rising justice is waking justice is rising justice is waking justice is rising just us is so love us if it's back Dropping the Justice knowledge Justice is waking Justice is rising And it ain't just us It's all of us If it's my love